0: James uh, Patterson here is um, a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester. Um, he's worked, uh, as Henry was saying, on just anything you can think of, it seems, in the area. Humanitarian intervention, responsibility to protect the ethics of all the increased use of private military and security companies, which is the subject not only of the talk he's going to give today, of course, the last step, uh, but the subject of, of a book which will be published. Um, next year with uh, Oxford University Press, though, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Um, his book "Humanitarian Intervention and Responsibility to Protect: Who Should Intervene?" Um, was published uh, in 2010 by OUP uh, and got the Notable Book Award in 2011 um, by the International Studies Association International Ethics Section. and uh, uh, that's now come out in paperwork. If you've got a copy, go and get one uh, because there's a new preface on Libya. Those interested in <laughs> Uh, his PhD was on humanitarian intervention and got the Sir Ernest Farker Prize for Best Dissertation in political Theory by the Political Studies Association. He's published various articles on the ethics of force and currently working on a four-volume uh, major work on humanitarian intervention. He's also working on a second monograph on ethical issues, a uh, surrounding this the whole issue of private companies and private security companies, which is what we're going to know about. Um, we're particularly pleased because this fits very strongly within our themes that we have for the change in character of war, not, not just about what's changed around the character of war, indeed how we understand war, which we talked about last week, but this, we're not losing sight of these ethical, uh, moral dimensions of uh, both techniques and technologies. So James, thank you very much for coming. The floor is yours.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, so my background is in political theory, and political theory tends to produce handouts. If you don't produce handouts, then... You're not regarded as a doing proper political theory. So I've got handouts and PowerPoint, um, and they're exactly the same information is on both. So you can either look at the handouts and kind of stare at the handouts, or you can you can look at me and PowerPoint. So I've just sent those sent those back. So um, what I'm going to talk about today is, um, as Rob said, my recently completed manuscript on the ethical issues surrounding the use of private military and security companies. So PMSEs for short. And so what I try and do in the book, in short, is consider the central normative objections to private military and security companies and bring these all together to provide an overall assessment of the case for and against their use. Now, the way that I'm going to structure the talk is that I'm going to give um, in the first half, a brief overview of the whole book. Now, it won't be possible to do justice or, um, or to discuss in any satisfactory manner. the got overall arguments of the book um, and to develop my case, you know, in 40, 45 minutes. So what I'm going to do is just give a brief overview in the first half and then the second half focus on one particular set of issues. And the issues that I'm going to concentrate on are those to do with the issues... With individuals, with individual contractors. And these are the issues that, when I've kind of discussed this topic with people previously, these are ones that people are often just most interested in. So I thought that's what I'd focus on. Okay, so let me start then by giving a bit of a brief overview of the book. Now, I expect that most of you have a fairly decent understanding um, or decent background knowledge. Of the prioritisation of the military force, I'm not going to go into this in great detail. Um, I'm not going to rehearse this here, but instead I'm going to make a few more introductory and clarificatory points. Three, three introductory and clarificatory points. So, first of all, I was, I'm going to say something about the scale of the PMSEs in Iraq and Afghanistan, in particular. Now, this has been immense. The total number of DoD contractors. Picked at approximately 163,000 in Iraq in September 20, uh, 2008 and 117,000 in Afghanistan in 2012. Now these figures from the US Congressional Research Service are only for DOD contractors, so only for Department of Defence contractors. The total number of contractors will be even greater when you consider other agencies um, and other states employing these firms. So the scale is huge. But it should, be made clear that, it should be made clear that this doesn't mean that there are, or have been, hundreds of thousands of American security contractors running around Iraq and Afghanistan, as, as often depicted in the media. So although much of the focus has been on security contractors, and particularly armed security contractors, these are, in fact, a relatively small part of the industry. In March 2011, security contractors comprised about 18% of the DOD contractors in Afghanistan, in Iraq. By far the largest part of the industry are those that concern logistical services, and th- these tend to receive a lot less attention. So logistical services, services include things such as the setting up of bases, food production, delivery, <laughs> sanitation, and laundry, um, laundry, and so on and so forth. In addition the vast majority of contractors, including security contractors, aren't American or British. In Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, sorry, sorry, in Iraq, where's my figures? Uh, 85% of security contractors were what are called TCNs, so third country nationals. In Afghanistan, 95% of security contractors were local nationals, so (laughs) Afghanis, Afghanistanis. So that's something just about the scale and a bit about the background of the industry. Now, let me say something about the definition of private, military and security companies because this always comes up. I think it's important to be very clear what it is we're actually talking about here. So as I've defined them, PMSCs are private firms that provide military and or security services that involve or assist the use of force beyond the borders of their own client, of their own or their client's political community. I'll pick out three important features of this definition. Firstly, since PMSEs are firms, this means that they are for-profit. Second, since they are private actors, they are separate, independent actors, so not part of the regular military or the state. And the third is that they are, to some extent, transnational. Now, private contractors are simply, on my account, those who work for PMSEs. So they, don't, they may not necessarily possess some of the defining features of PMSEs. And this is going to be important when we get onto the second part of the paper. So private contractors don't necessarily need to be for profit, if you like. So they don't need to intend to make a profit. And they might not necessarily be motivated by financial concerns. Second, they might not be separate from the regular military, but rather they might moonlight from the regular military, as has happened. Um, And third, they don't need to be foreign, as we've already seen. Now, in similar vein, I'm going to view regular soldiers as simply those that are employed by the regular military. So as such, the difference between private contractors and regular soldiers doesn't hang on any account of personal characteristics, Mm. such as their motivation or nationality. What's important is who the employers actually are. Now on this account on this de- on this definition there isn't a strong difference between private military and security companies and mercenary organizations so there isn't an analytically or ca- analytically necessary or a categorical difference between mercenaries and PMSCs despite various accounts in the literature and various industry attempts to claim that there are uh, there is, I think, a degree of difference. So, PMSCs are more likely to, to be professional, more likely to be corporate, and more likely to provide a wider range of services than traditional council of military uh, mercenaries. But mercenary organisations still seem to have these same defining features of being, intending to make a profit, being separate from the regular military, and being, to some extent, transnational. Okay. Third introductory point: It's worth noting that the use of PMSCs, especially at times, uh, especially in Iraq, has at times been subject to quite extensive negative media coverage, and I'm quite, I'm sure, a lot of you have seen this. So the criticisms tended to focus around four related problems. The first is that PMSCs are ineffectively regulated, and that is to say, there's not an effective system of national or international laws to govern their use. The second problem is that a number of contractors have been allegedly involved in the violations of civilians' human rights, and this has been exacerbated by the apparent lack of effective accountability to prosecute those who commit wrongdoing. So one very widely reported incident was in Nisra Square in central Baghdad in 2007, where Blackwater employees allegedly um, opened fire on um, civilians, killing seventeen, um, and there's yet to be a successful prosecution of those involved. The third problem surrounds the lack of competitiveness of the industry, and they, um, and in particular with the bidding processes. And the fourth problem surrounds uh, a lack of government oversight and proper, um, a lack of number of insufficient number of contract officers to oversee the use of PMSEs. Now, these very well-documented problems have led to some initiatives to improve the accountability of PMSEs and contractors, to improve contract procedures and their oversight. So there have been some, albeit limited, improvements in the way that the US in particular, and to the lesser degree, the UK, have been using contractors. More recently, um, the industry, along with... Various states have developed the International Code of Conduct to govern PMSEs, which is a form of industry self-regulation. Now, notwithstanding these various efforts, there is, I think, tended to be, unquestioned, the more basic issue of whether private military force is a morally acceptable way for a state to organize its armed forces. And there seems to be a general acquiescence that PMSEs are here to stay and that the use of PMSEs in certain roles has gone increasingly unquestioned. Now I think for a fuller assessment of the case for and against PMSEs, it's necessary to go beyond simply considering these four more more well-documented problems surrounding um, oversight and accountability. It requires consideration of some more fundamental issues... Um, which ultimately I think lie at the the heart of the case for and against the use of PMSEs. And these include things such as the alleged mercenary motives of private contractors, the use of PMSEs to circumvent democratic control, the issues of inequality and access to security created by a market for force, the effects of a market for force on international instability, and the efficacy, desirability and meaning of a state of monopoly on force. So in the book, what I try and do is consider these, consider the more well-documented problems, but also consider some of the more fundamental issues as well. And to do this, I divide the analysis into three levels. So the first concerns the employees of private military force and focuses on the justifiability (laughs) of being employed by PMSEs. And these are where you find some of the most vociferous objections <laughs> to private military force, such as those famously advanced by Machiavelli. So they often revolve around the claims that individuals are involved in private military force are depraved, they're brutal, they're merciless, um, fight for only for financial gain, with little concern for who their employer is. Now, if there is something to these objections, then it would seem that there would be really... Uh, serious reason to oppose the use of PMSCs. And that's because the individuals involved in the practice would be doing something wrong. So the contractors have the right to use an assist military force or are there strong reasons to hold that only regular soldiers can permissibly use lethal force or assist lethal force? And these are the issues that I'm going to focus on in the second part of the paper. Now the second level concerns the employers of private military force and focuses on the justifiability of employing PMSEs. (laughs) The issues that arise at this level include most fundamentally whether employing PMSEs threatens the legitimacy of the state. So sometimes it's argued that states or other actors undermine the social contract when they employ PMSEs because... It should be citizen soldiers that should do the fighting themselves as part of their civic responsibility. Now, in the book, I largely reject these claims and argue that PMSEs don't fundamentally threaten the legitimacy of the state. Yet I argue that issues to do with effectiveness, democratic control, the treatment of per- military personnel, and communal solidarity, communal solidarity give us reason in general to doubt the rectitude of using PMSEs. So that's the second level to do with employers. The third level is the international, and this concerns the more diffuse collective effects of the privatisation of military force on the international system and potential negative and even positive externalities of a market for force. So what I mean by this are things such as the potential for the market for force leading to greater circumvention of the formal constraints on war, such as international laws and then more informal constraints such as the pervading norms that we have in the international system. Um, for instance, PMSEs are often alleged to lead to more proxy wars. And I also argue, I I, I argue that point. I also argue that um, these are PMSEs and the market for force can undermine communal security within societies and decrease increased disorder in the international system by making it much easier for other states to resort to force. So my central claim is that private military force raises problems at all levels and should generally be eschewed. Now in making this claim I advance four themes and I'll briefly run through these. First, deeper and contingent problems. Certain theorists and industry analysts argue that although there are some problems with the use of PMSEs, if there are an adequate system of regulation put in place, there would be little wrong with their use. That is, there is nothing deeply problematic about the use of PMSEs. All that we simply need to do is sort out the current regulation of them. Now, I challenge this argument. I argue that in addition to some of the more obvious contingent problems that I've already mentioned, the use of PMSEs poses some more fundamental moral concerns, which ultimately give us reason to prefer public force. Now, I should say something about the strength of what I'm saying here. So, I don't claim that these are a priori moral problems. What I mean by that is they're not necessary to all contractors, and they're not unique to all contractors. Uh, They're not unique to PMSEs and contractors. Rather, there are objections that would apply even if PMSEs were effectively regulated by a system of national or international regulation. And these are often the sorts of objections that I run. are objections more generally that you find against markets in other basic services, such as against um, markets for health and markets for education, and include issues of motivation, the fact that contractors can't be easily compelled to fight, um, to, can't be so easily compelled to fight wars and operations and the undermining of communal cohesiveness by commoditizing military provision. So that's the first thing. There are both deeper and contingent problems. Now a second theme, I argue, is that despite these notable problems, it can be permissible, all things considered, sometimes. Sometimes to use PMSEs. And this in particular is when their use would lead to extremely beneficial consequences. So I'm not presenting an absolutist case that says you can never use them, because I think that would be far too strong. So you might conceive of, um, say, a humanitarian crisis, and the UN's looking to try and um, launch a military operation. No states are willing to provide logistical support, it could hire PMSEs to do so. Despite all the various problems with PMSEs that I, that I think there are, the extremely beneficial consequences in this case would outweigh those other considerations. The third theme is that I argue for a global public monopoly on the provision and authorization of military force in order to respond fully to the challenges posed by not only PMSEs but also the statist system of military force. And fourthly, I argue that we need to rethink some of the existing frameworks on the ethics of war. I think there's some seats down here. So for one, I suggest that the prioritisation of military force and the predominance of individual contractors and the high level of subcontracting demonstrates that collective response to, collectivist responses to individualistic, reductionist approaches to just war theory largely, largely fail. In short, the rise of PMSEs provides more grist to the revisionist just war theorists' mill. More generally, I argue that considering issues to do with uh, privatisation of military force shows that just war theory needs to consider issues to do with the legitimacy of the military the military undertaking the war. So whereas we've got traditional categories of ius ad bellum and ius bellum, we don't tend to consider when we're considering the particular case for a war or what's going on during a war, the issues to do with who's actually doing the fighting. And what I suggest is that in ad bellum terms, a war could potentially be even worse if it's, say, fought by PMSEs or a conscript army than an all-volunteer force. Okay, so that's a brief overview of the whole book. I know that's quite a lot to cover, um, and uh, it's very difficult to do justice to it in a in short space of time. So what I'm going to do now is focus, in particular, levels on, on the issues to do with the individuals and private military force. So I'm going to focus on whether it's permissible to be a contractor, so whether it's okay to be a contractor, and if so, when. And to do this, I'm going to consider three leading objections to being a private contractor. And what I'm going to say is that these objections fail to establish that it's morally wrong to be a private contractor. But they do highlight that contractors need to meet certain restrictions. Towards the end, I'm going to say that these restrictions are even greater than those for regular soldiers. Okay, so to start with, then, what I call the violation of human rights objection. I've already alluded to this. And this is one of the most vociferous and um, commonly encountered objections. So, for instance, Enrico Ballesteros, who used to be the UN Special Rapporteur on mercenarism, said that mercenaries based their comparative advantage and greater efficiency on the fact that they don't regard themselves as being bound to respect human rights and the rules of international human law. Greater disdain for human dignity and greater cruelty are often considered efficient instruments for winning the fight. More precisely, the objection is that the de facto immunity for certain contractors removes a major disincentive to commit abuses. So, as I've already indicated, there are numerous allegations of human rights abuses by PMSC personnel in Iraq. Now, I don't buy this objection. I think there's an obvious problem with it. And this this is that it doesn't show that there's anything, in fact, wrong with being a private contractor. All that is simply required is for a contractor not to violate civilians' human rights. So contractors who don't violate civilians' human rights wouldn't be subject to this objection. So there's nothing, at least inherently problematic, about being a contractor on this objection. Moreover, I think it's clear that most contractors don't directly at least commit violations of human rights. So I don't think that this objection provides a presumptive objection to contractors either. So it's not something that we can presume that generally applies. So I don't think this one has much force. Let me now turn to what I call the status objection. And the status objection says that there's something simply wrong with having the status of being a contractor. So there's ro- something wrong with the very, the very essence of being a private contractor, of being someone that can go to war as a private individual. Now, this objection has a bit more prima facie plausibility, and I'm going to consider it in a bit more detail. It's been most substantively defended by Alan Harrell, who's a legal theorist, um, including a very recent paper in a leading philosophy journal, Philosophy and Public Affairs. Now, Harrell argues that private contractors lack the permission to use force since they aren't public agents. They act on their own private judgment about whether to go to war. According to Harrell, private sanctions... such as as those apparently required in private prisons, that he also considers, um, and by private contractors, are impermissible. This is because in such circumstances, private individuals are required to act on their own judgment. Yet, he argues, the power to to inflict criminal sanctions or to um, go to war is what he calls an agent-dependent power in that it can be only successfully exercised by the state. Now, he thinks this objection applies even when private actors, such as um, those involved in private prisons or PMSCs on mercenaries for our purposes, follow their state's orders and comply with its decisions. Now, to substantiate his case, he gives the following example. A public official asks you to participate in the infliction of criminal sanctions against the convicted criminal. In this case, you are required to consider, as a private citizen, the justifiability of your imposition of sanctions on that individual. Now, for Harrell, this is really problematic because the public authorization of the action isn't exclusively an execution of the will of the state but it's rather dependent on your own private judgment about whether to actually inflict those sanctions. And for this reason, he thinks it would be impermissible. It depends on your own private judgment rather than that of the state, and so he thinks it would infringe the autonomy of those subjects of the sanctions. By contrast, he thinks that public officials possess special role-based duties to enforce the state's decisions without exercising any discretion. So the central objection that he presses against private contractors then is that they need to make private judgments rather than simply enforcing the will of the state. Now, I'm not persuaded by this argument, and and here's the reason why. It seems that this argument is too strong in saying that regular soldiers are not sometimes required to act on their own private judgments about whether to go to war or, and to whether to question whether their war meets the standard accounts of, say, Yusad ad bellum, just war theory criteria. Right. I accept that soldiers may sometimes have role-based duties to give significant weight um, to what their state says. So being a soldier might provide them with quite a, a significant number of reasons to accept as a general point what their state or their um, commanding officer says. Regardless of the content of this regardless of the content of the commands. In technical language, there's a pro tanto content independent duty to obey. Now, it seems too strong, however, to say that there is an indefeasible reason, i.e. an absolute reason, for regular soldiers always to follow the dictates of the state, Regardless of what it commands, sometimes the role-based um, the role-based duties of soldiers may outweigh the duties not to participate in the war. In what they, based on their private judgment, judge, judge unjust. Yeah, other times this won't be the case. So that sometimes I think regular soldiers are required to go along with what their own private judgment says that they should do. So I'll give you an example. Suppose that there's a regular soldier, and let's, let's call him Fred, um, joins the army of the democratic state that tends to fight just wars. The greater resources of the state to access the justice of the war um, and the fact that it's going to be democratically authorised by this nice democratic state gives Fred a pro tanto content independent reason, a general reason if you like, to fight any war ordered by this state. But it doesn't seem to follow that this consideration always outweighs the case for Fred acting on his own private judgment. So a particular war might contravene Fred's deeply held moral or religious convictions. Or Fred might have access to particular information um, that the proposed war was going to be unjust. Say that he... Um, I don't know. He's, he speaks to a friend. He's got works in intelligence services, so on and so forth. Alternatively, um, although Fred's state may be likely to fight just wars in most cases, a particular war, this particular war, may still be unlikely to be just. And Fred's refusal to participate in it might not do anything to actually harm the military. So, it might not um, kind of persuade other. Uh, others in the future to take a similar role, to take a similar position. So my point is that both private contractors and regular soldiers are permitted and sometimes required to act on their own private judgment. And so against Harrell, there isn't a major categorical difference here. Harrell's argument would, I think, also rule out the permissibility of um, having regular soldiers. Okay, so I reject the statist argument. Thirdly, the mercenary motives objection. This is probably the most common objection. It's that private contractors possess an inappropriate motive for waging war, namely financial gain and therefore act impermissibly. Now I think this objection is to some extent correct, although I'm not sure how weighty we should regard it. So let me explain what I mean by that. There are three basic premises of the argument. I'm going to run through each in turn. The first is less controversial, and this is simply that motives matter in moral judgment. So this is based on the Kantian notion that individuals should be motivated by the right sorts of reasons for their actions to have moral worth. Secondly... The, premise is, the second premise is that it's problematic if individuals are predominantly motivated by financial gain. Now this notion relies on the premise that to be moral, individuals should be motivated by duty, and duty, rega- duty requires to some extent other-regarding action. So we should be motivated by concern for others rather than our own self-interest. Now, the motive of financial gain seems to be particularly problematic because it's typically self-regarding. Not always, but typically self-regarding. So individuals who pursue financial gain, often but not always, do so because they seem to want to benefit themselves. So competence should be motivated not by financial gain, at least predominantly, but by other regard, such such as, for instance, patriotism. Now, against this, um, Tony Lynch and A.J. Walsh in a piece in the Journal of Political Philosophy um, in 2000 replied to such arguments by arguing that the motive of patriotism is potentially worse, more dangerous, they argue, because, for instance, it can lead to dehumanisation of the enemy um, and a lack of questioning of the war aims of the state. Now, I don't find this response persuasive. So there can be mild forms of patriotism. But more fundamentally, this second premise isn't saying that individuals have to be motivated by patriotism. What it's saying is they should be motivated by other regard, be it for their family, community, state, humanity, or even fellow soldiers, or or, um, patriotism. Now, another response to this second premise is to say it's too demanding. It's too demanding to ask that individuals should not be predominantly motivated by other-regarding concerns. Now, in order to reply to this worry, two clarifications are necessary. To start with, individuals are required to be other-regarding only so far as the motivation concerns their duties to others. So, it's only when they're thinking about and considering issues to do with the rights and interests of others. When they're, say, sat at home watching TV, um, they don't need to be other regarding. They can, they can watch what they want. Um, in addition, individuals are only predominantly required to be other regarding. They are still allowed to have some degree of self interest. So, for instance, a regular soldier might permissibly join the military. In order to help defend others in his state from aggression, but also as a secondary consideration, because it's a good career option with good pay and good benefits on offer. Okay, that's the second premise. Third premise: private contractors are more likely to be motivated, predominantly motivated by financial gain, than regular soldiers. This is probably the most controversial part of the um, part of this objection. Against this suggestion, it's sometimes argued that regular soldiers are motivated by financial gain, such as wanting to pursue a career with generous remuneration. On the other hand, it's claimed that some private contractors are motivated by other reasons. So, um, sometimes they're motivated by patriotism or or sense of adventure, um, or even sometimes wanting to do something for humanity, you can conceive of that. Now, I accept these points. Individuals, individual contractors, just like regular soldiers, are of course likely to possess a variety of motives that are going to influence the decision to become a contractor. Some will be motivated predominantly by financial gain. Others won't be. Yet it still seems that we can reasonably expect that financial considerations will figure more predominantly in the decision-making of PMSE personnel than that of their public counterparts. Now, it is extremely difficult to prove this is the case. And I think to do this, you need to have a huge comparative study across the regular military and PMSEs, private contractors, including all the local nationals and um, third-country nationals, um, compare similar personnel, um, Try and, and actually try and establish what the actual motivations are. It's going to be very difficult to do this sort of survey. Nevertheless, I think we can still reasonably expect that this is the case without having that kind of degree of proof. And this is for three reasons. Firstly, there simply seems to be a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests that this is the case. Secondly, it seems very odd that it would seem to be very odd if this weren't the case, if the high wages on offer for private contractors weren't a key motivating factor in the decision of private contractors to take on contracts. So there's a clear justification or reason for this reasonable (coughs) expectation, financial incentives. And thirdly, in the various surveys that there have been of private contractors financial considerations are often highlighted as influential. So there have been some surveys, although they're they're not such a broad survey. So I think overall, then, that this mercenary motives objection has some validity. Yet it's only a presumptive objection. So it clearly doesn't apply to those contractors who don't possess mercenary motives. In other words, like the violation of human rights objection, it only sets forth a restriction that contractors should meet. If private contractors are motivated by, predominantly by the right sorts of reasons, then this objection won't apply. And it's conceivable that they could be motivated by the right sorts of reasons. Remember what I said in the first part of the talk? where contractors simply need to be those who work for PMSEs. They don't need to have the intention or a motive of being motivated by a financial gain to be deemed a private contractor. Furthermore, even if contractors don't meet this condition, this doesn't seem to be important more generally when considering um, the grand scheme of war. So I think this objection we can presume, generally applies to private contractors. Well, generally, this objection is going to be one that's going to hold against a lot of contractors. Not all of them, but a lot of them. It's a restriction they should meet. I don't think a lot of them are going to meet it. However, this consideration doesn't seem to be a major consideration when considering the whole grand scheme of war, when we're thinking about things such as mass human rights violations, international instability, responding to aggression. These much higher moral stakes when considering the case for and against, say, an all-volunteer force, seem to be much more important in determining the case rather than issues to do with motivation of those actually fighting the force. So then, I've considered three objections and rejected them, at least in part. I think the most motive's objection has some validity, but it's not particularly weighty. None of the objections established that it's impermissible to be a private contractor. Now, in the final section of the paper, I'm going to very briefly consider um, the restrictions that contractors should meet. And I'm going to suggest that these are more demanding than those for regular soldiers. I'll suggest that contractors should always make judgments in war that, as, as far as they can reason, establish are clearly just. So clearly meet all of the relevant just war cr- theory criteria, whereas regular soldiers are required to make contributions that are only probably just. Now, I'm realising I'm running a little bit out of time. Um, When I practised this on my wife, it took about 40 minutes, so I'm going a bit slower than that today, so apologies for that. Um, So, restrictions from private contractors. On what I call the deferral view... Soldiers are morally required to follow the assessments of their leaders, of Yusuf Bellum, of traditional just war considerations, even if they disagree with this assessment. So this is, an, in essence, Harrell's view that we looked at earlier. Now, there are, sort, there are various sorts of considerations you might think give us reason to adopt the deferral view. Mm-hmm. So you might think that rulers have got better access to information about um, justice of wars. They're, they, they, they're sort of high-level committees, uh, briefed by intelligence community, so on and so forth. Second, you might think that rulers are democratically elected and authorised by the people to make decisions about war rather than, say, regular soldiers. Thirdly, you might think that the continuing function of the military um, and the successful fighting of wars requires obedience rather than conscientious refusal or objection. And fourthly, you might think that soldiers largely agree When they join to fight the wars decided by their leaders. Now, as I've already suggested, I don't think these objections, these reasons, um, (coughs) provide a strong reason, an indefeasible reason, to say that contracts, to say that regular soldiers should always follow the dictates of their state. They should still sometimes look to their own private judgment. But that's only sometimes. I do think that these reasons generally have some force. We should give them some weight, if not, as Harel says, indefeasible weight. Now, by contrast, it's very clear that this deferral view doesn't apply to private contractors. So private contractors aren't under the authority of the regular military. They're largely free to select the wars in which they fight because they're uh, recruited on the basis of online databases, um, on a single contract basis. So they don't possess any pro or institutional duties to obey their state or their, uh, their commanding officer. They haven't got a commanding officer before they signed up. So consequently, contractors, I suggest, should always look to their own judgment of the acceptability of their participation in the conflict. So they should always try and make judgments. about about whether a particular contract is going to meet the relevant just war considerations and they should always follow that judgment. So by contrast, the regular soldier might to some extent be excused, if you like, um, because of these four competing considerations for the role-based duties. Now... final kind of final point there's an interesting upshot of this argument is that it may in fact be preferable to be a private contractor in principle at least joining the regular military always poses the risk that one could be asked to make an unjust contribution in the war go and fight unjust wars it may also be that disobeying orders will have detrimental effects on the military more generally and undermine the military's um, likely some fighting effective wars which may turn out to be just overall. So given the potential harmful effects of conscientious refusal and the risk of fighting in unjust wars it may be better to choose to become a private contractor if an individual. You can choose your contracts when you're supremely confident that you're only going to be fighting in just wars. In addition you might know that it'll be hard to, for you to conscientiously refuse if you join the military, uh, regular military, because, for instance, the costs of doing so, say imprisonment um, or being ostracised, um, and potentially your respect for authority figures. Say if you're a bit um, who, who you hold in very high regard. By contrast, you might think that it makes it very much easier for you to do the right thing if you're a private contractor. So, if you're a really moral person, you might think the best thing to do is to go off and actually be a private contractor rather than to join the regular military. That's in principle. Of course, as a practical matter, it's a, it's a further question whether contractors take on the options to pursue, to fight only in just wars, given their financial considerations that I've already t- alluded to, um, and other considerations that are going to influence their decisions to take on war. And indeed, I'm going to finish on a more sceptical note. So although it might, in principle, be permissible to be a private contractor, and even, in principle, be preferable to be a private contractor, in practice, it's likely that many private contractors act impermissibly. First, as I've already suggested, many may lack the right motive for participation in war. Second, most, I think, will not take advantage of their free choice and will participate instead in wars that are unjust according to just war theory conditions. This is because, although I'm I'm not going to argue the point here, most wars are, I think, unjust. If this is correct, then it seems to follow that most of those who participate in unjust wars will also act impermissibly. So, final point then is that although I think that it can in principle, be permissible to be a private contractor given that most wars are unlikely to be just and given them financial motives presumably of private contractors I think in practice this is unlikely. Thank you. James,
0: thank you very much indeed.